The thing is not how you are on your best days, how can you step up on your worst day? When everything is going terrible, when you're tired, when you're frustrated, when you're edgy, how do you treat other people? Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. On this episode, author Michael Thompson joins us to tell us all about his new book, Cage Kings, how an unlikely group of moguls, champions, and hustlers transformed the UFC into a $10 billion industry. It traces the unlikely rise of mixed martial arts from what had early on been referred to as human cockfighting that somehow turned into a global pop culture phenomenon. How did cage fighting ever go so mainstream? Well, that's what we'll find all about today. So here we go. And now, asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Dows Podcast, begins now. Alrighty. Welcome back, everybody. Another fine episode of the Drunken Dows Podcast. I hear there's a ping pong table around here, but it's not around. Um, but they said they'll be back after the hurricane comes. Yep. So, episode 242. The sound you hear from across me is none other than the middle finger of the gods, Mr. Daniele Bolelli. Yeah, we are um, preparing for a hurricane to hit, which hasn't happened in 100 years in California. So Three in recorded history. Wow, Jesus. So, yeah, joy or joy, but yeah, we're recording this before all hell breaks loose. <laughs> um, today we're going to have an interview with Michael Thompson, author of the book Cage Kings, how an unlikely group of moguls, champions, and hustlers transformed the UFC into a 10 billion industry. So that's what we're going to be chatting about. Before we do that, a couple of quick things. Uh, one, you guys could do me a big favor. I started in a rare moment of intelligence. I started uh, a link tree. If you guys are not familiar, a link tree is something where basically on one website, you can put all your links to YouTube, social media, Substack, Patreon, whatever the hell you have going on in one place. So it's easier than trying to tell people, go to this site, go to that site, go to these other things. So if you guys can do me a favor and subscribe just to the free stuff, you don't need to worry about money. But if you can hit the subscribe to the free stuff, there's a YouTube channel for History on Fire. There's a Substack that's mostly free like all the stuff i'm writing is free there are only some history on fire episodes on there for pay but you don't need to worry about that various social media so if you guys can check it out linktree is l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e tricky it is tricky is not you know t-r-i-c-k dot e-e yeah, it's spelled, uh, it's kind of funny because it's uh, radio that have a link tree, the whole thing, there's a link through and then EE after the dot. And then, of course, my name, <laughs> forward slash Daniele Bolelli. So if you can check it out, you would be doing me a big favor. And if you have the time, go to the YouTube page. There's a couple of shows already up there. They're audio only, but we need to build up 4,000 hours. Yeah. So if you'd be kind enough. Play it 50 times if you have the opportunity. It yes, you can, uh, you can leave it on mute and just let it go in the background. And yeah, uh, yeah it helps because 4,000 hours are a lot. Not when 4,000 people do it once. No, exactly. That would help. We could actually accomplish that. Yeah, yeah. That would actually be done somewhat quickly. So yeah, catch one of the two-hour-long History on Fire podcast. Let it roll in the background. Play it for your cat. She'll like it. And we are good. So thank you to Shore Design T-shirts, of course. Thank you also to Dakota Pure Bison that mm. have sent me some pretty awesome stuff. If you are going to shop for Bison products, check them out. Dakota Pure Bison, code HOF10 for a 10% discount. DakotaPureBison.com. Of course, big thank you to the sweet folks supporting us. Let the pottering begin. 
So for those of you who part with your hard-earned money, we want to thank Mr. Stephen McKee, Daniel Fischel, Frederick Hahn, Jonathan Waterloo, Keegan Walsh, Stephen Notariani, Lisa Robles, Nick Zunik, Aistis Juska, John Vergara, Joseph Lord, Nicola Tonni, Globalhobos.com, Eden Cario, Andre Garapetian, and Samuele Rudelli. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys Familiar are awesome. names once in each one. Yep. If you want to join this brave band of heroes, paypal.me forward slash dbolelli. Again, paypal.me forward slash dbolelli, or you can just use my email, which is bodhi1974 at yahoo.com. Having said all that, shall we roll? Yeah. Let's roll. Today with us, Mr. Michael Thompson. Thank you so much for joining the show and being willing to chat about your new book that I think by the time this comes out has been out probably a few days or possibly weeks. Yeah, I think two weeks so far. Two weeks. Okay. So by the time this is out, it's probably another two weeks to a month. So we'll still be in the early stages. But before I forget, let's mention the title, Cage Kings. How an unlikely group of moguls, champions, and hustlers transformed the UFC into a $10 billion industry. I had the pleasure of reading it while I was flying across the ocean as I was going to Italy. So I'm all caught up. I got the whole deal. So ready to (laughs) chat about it. How did you, uh, I mean, you mentioned it in the book, but for people who are not familiar with everything you've written yet, how did you stumble (laughs) into MMA? Where did the passion for MMA begin that would eventually lead you so many years later to actually write in this big, solid history of it? The way I kind of phrase it in the book is it's more that MMA stumbled into me in Mm -hmm. a way. And I think that's what kind of interested me in the story originally that, uh, I was 16 when the first UFC debuted um, in 1993. So I was a junior in high school. I was smack dab in the middle of the target demographic they were going after. So it was it was really more of a, a marketing campaign that sort of reached into my world. And as I've sort of aged throughout my kind of early and mid adult life, um, you know, it's kind of been there every step of the way. And I've been into it, but it's also been into me as a consumer and sort of pitching me this whole like array of products, whether it's, you know, monster energy drinks right now or (laughs) Bauer frozen foods or video games in the early days. Affliction t-shirts. Yes. Demetrius Johnson with Microsoft Xbox on his shorts. And yeah. You know, the whole deal is sort of creating this whole identity, not just around being a fighter, but being a fan of fighters. And it was sort of people exactly like me that that were, you know, the most desirable kind of market for that. Um, And, you know, you know, I was I was into fighting before. I'm not a fighter. I'm not, you know. But I, I had grown up interested in martial arts. I, you know, I kept bouncing off of the local um, karate classes in Fresno, which is where I grew up in Central California. You know, it's very much the sort of, um, you know, the fraudulent dojo kind of system that Art Davy, when he spoke <laughs> yeah. about the early days, what, you know, it's sort of like memorize, you know, a 50 move kata when you're 12 yeah. years old. And it's like, well, what if the guy I'm fighting doesn't follow the script? And <laughs> yes. I, I just lose, like, what? I had grown up before the UFC. I'd grown up in the eighties watching, you know, a lot of free boxing on ABC, um, you know, and that was a golden age and it's in its own right. So I'd always been interested in the idea of combat sports. There wasn't a coherent single brand that you could funnel all that energy into. So I, I thought, you know, it was an interesting opportunity to tell that story from the business side and also kind of see, you know, how, you know, in a lot of ways, mixed martial arts today was the first major new sport of the 21st century. And it's it's rare you get a chance to sort of follow a sport from inception to, you know, reaching mass market finally. And I thought that was an interesting cultural subject, a business subject, a, a economic subject, a political subject, you know, it braided a lot of different threads together. 
Yes, and that's exactly what your book is. You know, you're for people who are interested, this is this book does pull all these threads together because you go into the politics, you go into the economics of it all, you go into the business side of it, you go in the human side of it. There's so, you know, most of the books about MMA tend to be either biographies or technical stuff. This is more of an actual real history of MMA as a global phenomenon. And that's uh, and you're right. You know, it's cre- pretty crazy to think how quickly a new sport has gone mainstream. I mean, I remember not even that long. I remember probably 2005 mm. talking to the sport editor of the LA Five, of the LA Times, yeah, and uh, and kind of pitching him MMA as like, hey, maybe we could cover it. Maybe what do you think? I have this background, this and that. And he was, and his response was like, MMA, isn't that like pro wrestling or something? Nobody's ever going to care about that. It's not a real sport. And I was like, and, and, you know, I totally knew by then where he was going. I knew that he was going to be big. And it was hilarious to see some guy who was the sport editor of the LA Times, whose job is to see trends in sports, clearly being completely clueless that a whole new thing was growing under his feet without even him having any idea. Yeah, I mean, exactly. There is. The LA Times coverage of the UFC in the early days, especially was, you know, I quote it a few times in the book. It's very dismissive. There was um, right after the Fertitta brothers bought the company in 2001, they had a press junket at the House of Blues um, for their first show in Las Vegas. And they brought Tito Ortiz out. And it was this this was a Carmen Electra era when she was (laughs) a spokesperson. And so the LA Times went out and they covered the junket. But the writer, his main priority was trying to get gossip about Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra. Yes, of course. He called Dana White Dan. He, you know, he called <laughs> Tito Ortiz, who was walking around with the championship belt at the time, some big lug with a gold ring. You know, <laughs> they yeah. almost couldn't be bothered to learn the names. Yeah, it was wild when you think how recent that was. And now, and you know, you chronicle these throughout the history of the UFC. How you chronicle how UFC was on its way to failure for quite a while. And it really wasn't until uh, when they did the Ultimate Fighter one and, uh, you know, how that changed the arc economically, how it made it viable and essentially how it put them on the right footing to become a legit business in a big way, in a mainstream kind of way. Yeah, Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's part of the UFC myth in a lot of ways, too, that the Ultimate Fighter kind of saved the company. It's sort of... You know, one of the things that was a problem with the company up to that point was under the previous owners, you know, Bob Myrowitz and Semaphore Entertainment Group, they didn't really have the kind of capital and access yeah. to capital that the Fertitas had. The Fertitas were billionaires at this time. Their their casino company, Station Casinos, was earning, I think, $970 million a year in gross revenue. So, you know, they're spending $10 million a year to keep the UFC afloat. They're losing, you know, four or five million dollars a year. That's sort of a rounding error in their lives, you know. It's right. Like, you know, they make it sound like this tragedy or this sort of like deep, deep gut check that they had to go through to, you know, really commit to this business they had bought. But, you know, over the same time they lost 35, 40 million dollars with the UFC, they made four point two billion or something like that with station casinos. So Right. So it was just pocket change for them. It really was, I think, the not just the ultimate fighter, but the growth of reality television as a sort of genre and a, yep. a kind of aesthetic. And the way that that genre formed around the idea of these elimination tournaments where the ultimate prize was a viable career. You know, was, you know, there's a lot of writing about, you know, I, one of the books... I didn't wind up quoting it in my book, but um, it was influential in a lot of my thinking was uh, Platform Capitalism by Nick Cernicek. And, um, you know, he writes a lot about the great sort of or the long decline from um, the 1920s and the slow sort of like pressure that a lot of companies felt on profitability. And they they had to go to more and more extreme ends to sort of maintain profitability to kind of pitch themselves to the market and raise capital for the future. And so, you know, the natural place to put downward pressure was on workers. And so, you know, by the mid 2000s, when the UFC was becoming popular, you had this whole generation of people where, you know, 
there was no career path. You know, the career path was working as a temp or working, you know, a day job here or there. Um, a lot of people were living at home. A lot of people were turning to credit cards to support themselves. Credit card debt had exploded. The number of jobs, full-time jobs with health benefits or retirement benefits had been cut by 30, 40, 50%, depending on the sector. So you had a real generation that had, you know, its economic hopes kind of like slashed. And then you turn on the TV and there's all these dream jobs, you know, it's Hell's Kitchen with Gordon, Gordon Ramsay. You could be a chef. You know, if you survive this brutal competition, you can come out the other end with a hundred thousand dollar a year uh, job as an executive chef somewhere. And it was the same sort of promise that the ultimate fighter had with sort of like, you know, if you survive this competition, you'll have an identity, a professional working identity as a cage fighter, a mixed martial artist. And, you know, now looking back, we know that contract was, you know, it was offering 8,000 and 8,000 to fight. It wasn't really a dream job for most of the people that were competing for it. But, um, you know, the, it was it was such an economically desperate time for so many people. Um, and in a lot of ways today, it's even it's even worse for a lot of people. So, um, you know, that was that was part and parcel of what made cage fighting appealing to so many. I think it was sort of, you know, and the fighters, the cast members on that first season of Ultimate Fighter, they really sold the audience on the idea that the UFC was a dream job because they cared so deeply about it. They had invested themselves so personally um, and taken such huge risks with their own life. You know, I mean, some of them were sleeping in their own cars. Some of them had quit their own day jobs, uh, you know, left newborn children to come compete for a chance at, you know, an $8,000 contract with the UFC that that had real kind of human power to see that, that someone was willing to go to those lengths um, because they valued the UFC. And I think that taught the audience and the public at large to start valuing the UFC a little bit more highly than, you know, some of these like stories like you'd read in the LA times, whether it's like Dan white and, you know, belittling Tito Ortiz would have had people kind of think about the, the sport. Yeah. I mean, in fact, one of the things that's interesting in what you just described and what you write about is how the UFC sort of fits with a parable of uh, late stage capitalism at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st, because the reality, the economic reality of MMA is that fighters are horrendously exploited for the most part. You know, there's a tiny percentage at the top that's making seriously, insanely good money. And the overwhelming majority of people, even at a high level, I mean, even UFC fighters, when you look at what an entry level UFC fighter makes today in 2023, it's still money that you can live on. You know, by the time you pay your coaches, by the time you taxes, by the time everything, it's not a career. Like, you cannot make enough to live on. And yet, the the idea, in a way, was rather than, hey, maybe there's something wrong with this system, the whole premise of the Ultimate Fighter or any of the kind of shows that you describe is this uh, almost gladiatorial survival thing of, like, Everybody's got to fall along the wayside, but the one victor will claim the prize and the chance at a real good life, which is paradoxical because it sounds like the plot of a bad martial art movie. You know, it sounds like, you know, you have the... And yet it's played out in real life, like, in an unironic way. Like, there's no problem with it. And it's like, well, you know, when you look at the economics, there definitely are some problems with it. The fact that, you know, UFC is uh, not covered by the Ali Act, the fact that in pretty much in statistics you highlight in the book how most other professional sports, the split between uh, the athletes versus the business side is considerably more even compared to, or at least better, compared to what exists in MMA, which is still kind of the far west as far as... Uh, uh, as far as the distribution of where the money goes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think, I mean, one of the, the even darker implications in this sport too is that, you know, the way that wages are structured, they're, they're structured as a wager kind of, it's a bet, right? So oh, yeah. you have, you know, you don't have a purse, you have 
this payment that's split in 50% increments. So it's, I think starting pay today is 12,000 and 12,000, which it's been for the last few years. If you lose, you only get 12,000. Even if you know, you're know you on a five fight winning streak, I mean, you wouldn't be making 12,000 if you're on a five fight winning streak, but you go into the cage gambling that you're going to get the other half of what you assume is your purse. Yeah. And if you don't get that, if you lose, I think the implication, and I think this resonates for the audience and for you know the fighters, is that they don't deserve that other half. They didn't right. do good enough, so they you know they misread a feint, and they slipped you know two inches to the left instead of the right, and they ended up getting knocked out. And mm-hmm. because they made you know a mistake in half a second or a second you know of slight miscalculation, fifty percent of their earnings is just evaporated. And, you know, I think in a bizarre way, there's a kind of masochistic comfort in that. There was sort of like you deserve your present sort of economic condition. You deserve the struggle that you're in now because you haven't mastered that perfect moment of complete success, that total overcoming dominant victory. And, you know, as fans, we can watch it. We watch, you know, 12 fights an event, 40, 43 events a year. And, you know, you see 12 people lose every night, you know, once a week. And it sort of makes sense that like, oh, they go home with less. Well, they deserved it because they weren't good enough. Someone else was better as if that somehow correlates to, you know, who does and doesn't deserve a respectable living. You know, it, it resonates, I think, in a lot of different parts of our society and, and economy. It definitely does. And I think that's what's harsh about it, especially because you're not talking baseball or you're not talking a sport where not only the pay, but the risks are so dire. You're talking about a sport where people will pay the price heavily, physically, you know, and not just in terms of broken bones. I mean, the, the research regarding CTE in the past few couple of decades you know, the evidence regarding CT is not exactly one that makes you feel particularly good about combat sports that involve striking. Because, you know, grappling is a different story. There's damage, of course, but it's primarily limbs. When you talk striking, I mean, the name of the game is to give each other brain damage. Yeah. And, of course, the more damage there is, the more the exciting the fighting is and more likely you are to actually get bonuses or pay. Because the reality also is that one of the things, the way the economics are structured, is that you see guys who modify their fighting style because it's not exciting enough. And so they may not get a contract or renew it even if they are successful fighters because people don't care enough. Why? Because it's more grappling-based and they don't have the flashy knockouts or they don't have the trade blows in the center of the cage thing, which of course is riskier from a point of view of your physical health and everything else, but also is what's going to bring you more money. Yeah. And I don't know, I guess one question I have for you in that regard is this, is in regards to... You know, before you being a writer about it, before you being a researcher, you were a fan of MMA, like mm-hmm. I've been, like a lot of people. How do you think we negotiate what we know about CTE with mm-hmm. at the same time enjoying the sport? Or rather, how do you negotiate? Because I, I'm sure the answer is different from everybody. But, you know, how do you deal with the fact that you are looking at people great numbers of which will suffer for the rest of their life for what they are doing in the cage and yet we watch it as a sport and enjoy it Uh, clearly there are some mixed emotions there there definitely are when i watch so i'm curious how what your thoughts are i think it's central to what makes the sport compelling you know i mean you've heard you know, the Max Kellerman, I don't know if he invented the the sort of four corners analogy where you put four different sports on four different corners in an intersection, everyone's going to go watch the fight. They're not going to watch basketball. Yeah. But I think a big part of that is not, you know, the, you know, we watch not because it's entertaining. We watch because it, it, there's something in a fight that different from other sports implicates you that you may be responsible for. If you, if you see a fight on the street corner, a huge part of your mind is going to start thinking, do I have to intervene? Is something Mm -hmm. so dangerous that someone could die? Like, 
you know, it's not just sort of like, I can't believe a guy slam dunked a ball. This is amazing. I've never seen that kind of move before. It's not athletic anymore. It's, there's a moral component to it. And that is a huge part of what transfixes people as a, as a matter of sort of spectator kind of, or spectacle power. Yeah. And I think there's this back and forth kind of feeling that we have as fans where it produces a literal high to suspend your compassion. It's almost like holding your breath and getting kind of a fuzzy, you know, oxygen high in your blood to sort of suspend your compassion and then yeah. to come back into it and say like, Oh, I do care about them. At the end of the fight, the fighters hug, they you yeah. know, generally show like deep respect and gratitude for allowing each other to go. Teddy Atlas describes it in a really beautiful way. Like, to open that door into the darkness and see how far into the darkness you can go and to see who you are when you're out furthest in the dark where you don't have any of your familiar things anymore. You know, as a martial artist, you know, just on a kind of metaphysical level, that's an incredibly powerful moment and experience to find out who you are when everything's stripped away and you have, you know, nothing around you. And, you know, what can you do for yourself then? What can you say for yourself then? There's a great sort of magnetism in it, but there's a great cost to that as well. And I think we're constantly vacillating back and forth between the cheapness of the spectacle where we suspend our kind of true recognition of what the cost is, what the stake could be. Because yep. we yep. don't have to see that. We don't have to see the 10 years on the walker or the incontinence or the drooling or the all of the sort of late stage, late life kind of complications that come from chronic brain trauma, or even, you know, the day-to-day -day stuff about, um, you know, dementia or the memory loss or loss of speech coherence, whatever it is, that ability to go back and forth, that it, it's a dissociative kind of appeal. And I yeah. think there's a lot of things in contemporary culture that like are built on dissociation. I think the UFC in a lot of ways is the hood ornament of a dissociative culture. You know, I've written a lot about video games. The greatest power in video games is their capacity to disassociate actions, right? So you hit a button and then in the game on screen, you have like a grenade explode and five people die or whatever. And it's, it's the widest gap between the outcome versus the input. And the wider that gap is, the more absurd that gap is, the more appealing the spectacle is. And so I think without the real, the reality of fights, the UFC wouldn't be that appealing. As a practicing martial artist, it's not that spectacle. You go into any gym, it's a lot of just very subtle kind of yeoman-like repetition. Like it isn't actually the clash of the titans that the UFC presents itself as quote a little bit at the end of the book you know i, I kind of wish i could have gone into it a little uh at, at a little more length but jigoro kano who you know is the founder of, of judo wrote about kind of the dangers of turning martial arts into a spectacle and kind of trying to keep it as a pro-social kind of communitarian practice the important thing was practicing it it wasn't watching it it was actually you could corrupt it very easily by you know letting money influence it or ego or all these other things that you had to remain humble and conscious of how many other people had to sacrifice to build you up, to build your knowledge up, how many other people's knowledge was feeding into your own kind of ability to learn what techniques worked, what techniques didn't. He thought that that could be a great kind of leveler in a lot of ways of, of social bond that would deepen people's respect for one another and willingness to share and work together. Talk about nice idealistic view that Kano had, because it's like, you know, it's so sweet and beautiful. And then you look at the reality and it's like, yeah, that's not how most people operate. His vision was beautiful. Reality, a little less so. Sure, but I mean, if you go into a, like a jujitsu gym, not necessarily the famous ones, but just sure. you know, even a lesser one. There really is that kind of spirit of like. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, in fact, don't like, get me wrong. I'm not saying it doesn't exist in martial arts. I'm just saying. Yeah. It's a little less of a straightforward path, or also just like the only path that the Jigger kind of played it as. Uh, but no, yeah, of course it exists, and that's what attracts so many of us to the martial arts for sure. Yeah. yeah.
And I mean, that's the sort of spectacle too, because there is real technical value at the yeah. highest level of mixed martial arts of the UFC of sort of like, if you can closed fist punch in guard, mm-hmm. that does change a lot of what happens, well, what, what techniques you think are viable and aren't viable. If you're on, you know, a concrete sidewalk instead of a padded gym that actually changes what, what works and what doesn't. And so, you know, there is value to it, but there's also great damage. No, for sure. And I think uh, the stuff you are referring to about this going back and forth between sort of turning off the empathy, because mm-hmm. you have to if you're a fighter, of course, and turning it back on, that's a, that's an interesting, delicate balance that, like, I had this experience recently where I was watching, you know, my lady fought professionally, even for one of the biggest organizations in the world. She fought for one in Asia. And, you know, we flipping through YouTube stuff, we, one of her fights popped up. And so we're watching it. And then there's the moment where she's winning and she just looked away. And it was funny because it was like she had her, she had taken down the opponent. She had her trapped in a crucifix and was beginning to drop punches. And I look at her and I was like, I, I don't think I even asked a question. I think I just had this interrogative expression. And she was like, you know, I like that lady. I don't really like seeing myself punch her in the face. They're just, you know, and it was weird because she did it. And she even felt good about what she did athletically. You know, the challenge, the fear, the adrenaline, all of that stuff. She, there's something in her that felt good about going through that experience. But then there's another side and look at it and I'm like, I'm punching in the face some sweet lady that I could sit down for dinner and have a pleasant conversation with. And instead, and and she was like, "Man, uh, it's it hits differently at different moments, you know." And that uh, turning it on and off. Sometimes you don't choose to turn it on and off, and that's when you start having questions about your career path, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, Ryan Hall, the jujitsu specialist, yep. I mean, he's spoken about this even at low levels of jujitsu there's a different mindset you have to put yourself in even just enrolling when you feel an arm bar like how how much torque you there's a a boundary in your own mind it's almost unconscious that you have to force yourself across when you're going with someone that's very skillful you're like they're not gonna tap they're not going to respect the threat of this if i don't demonstrate the threat by torquing as fully and powerfully as i can and you have to sort of let yourself kind of go cold a little bit you have to let yourself say like i'm okay with something i would hate to have happen happen yeah in this <laughs> i don't yeah, to go deeper into the scenario and it yeah, goes absolutely. further with fish hooking with eye gouging with hammer fists how many hammer like you know, you see it a lot in UFC fights, even where, you know, someone is clearly kind of semi-conscious and the fight is sort of over. But, you know, how many hammer fists do you really need to get the referee to intervene? Exactly. It's a fuzzy thing. Yeah. And some people clearly don't care. They are like, I'm just going to throw as many as I need to until the ref steps in, whatever. Not my job to call it. And then you can see some guys who are clearly uncomfortable, who are like looking at the ref, like, are we going to call it or do I need to kill this guy? Like, what are we doing here? You know? Yeah. I think there's, you know, I keep sort of harping back to the way this resonates in other parts of society, but my brother's best friend is a, is a long distance trucker. You can compare that pretty favorably not favorably, but, you know, similarly to the long-term injuries that jiu-jitsu players have with arthritic fingers, bad necks, bad backs, you know, knees that go out, you know, I mean, he's dealing with, you know, hernia, hemorrhoids, hypertension. There's a lot of jobs in this country that have long-term health effects that are just chronic and degrading and lower your overall quality of life far past where it would be otherwise or could be otherwise that don't have the same sort of drama of like of cte attached to them that we just kind of make invisible too even just sort of homelessness i mean in new york you could walk outside and pass someone that doesn't have shoes and has a a giant dried out sore on their leg or foot and it's sort of like from living that's not even from like a vocation you know i mean there's there's chronic traumatic health effects to our entire collective way of life i think 
There's something cathartic about seeing that concentrated into a single moment of a perfect knockout, you know, this sort of Renaissance style slow motion replay of like Conor McGregor just magnetically punching Jose Aldo. Yeah, and I think that's where you're right. It's bigger than the sport itself. You see it play out in life. And it, that is probably part of the appeal of MMA as a spectacle is the drama of it all. Because the reality is that, as you pointed out, we are all dealing with drama. In some cases, drama in a physical sense, like what you describe, you know, there are a zillion jobs where people pay a humongous physical toll and nobody's ever going to clap for them. They are never going to be under the spotlight. They are never, they are still probably going to be just as exploited, if not more. And it happens all the time in a million other jobs. This one is under the spotlight. And part of what's appealing is the the fact that we all deal with heavy stuff in life, we all deal with adversity, we all deal with scary things, we all deal with things like getting sick and dying. And a fight is sort of a microcosm of all that drama put on stage under the spotlight. Like, how is somebody going to perform under some of the most stressful conditions possible? How are they going to deal with conflict? How are they going to deal with fear, which is a very real thing when you're fighting, unless you're completely a psycho and you turned off all your emotions? You know, how are you going to deal with all those things that and seeing somebody triumph under those circumstances as a cathartic effect is inspiring. It's uh, like it shows you the kind of qualities that you wish you could embody in daily life when you're dealing with your own whatever drama you deal with in daily life. And so in that sense, I completely, you know, one end I'm sort of hyping the why are we even watching this? And on the other end, I remember why I've watched for 30 years or something. You know, I get it. I make sense. And there is something even beautiful about it. And... And I guess, I don't know, I find myself after, I'm kind of like you, I started watching, I think the first UFC I ever watched was uh, UFC 3. I remember Hoyce uh, winning by holding Kimo's hair <laughs> really hard because he was getting his ass handed to him. That was the first one I watched. I was in a Brazilian restaurant and they were showing it on pay-per-view and I was like, cool, I got to. And ever after that, I followed this. So I followed it from pretty much the very beginning and I vacillate. I go back and forth about it. You know, I go through phases where um, I see the beauty of it. And then I go through phases where I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I watching this? This is terrible in a lot of ways. And, and both emotions are real. And so it's kind of tricky to figure out how do I reconcile within myself such uh, very disparate emotions, emotions that go in radically different directions, and yet they are both real and they both have a basis in reality. That's why I'm curious, for you as a viewer, uh, do you still enjoy MMA? Do you still watch it on a regular? Do you still, uh, you know, yes or no, why, that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, I, I watch it um weekly still at different points i've been different levels of committed you know there was a period where i would get up at 4 a.m to watch the early prelims for like fights from singapore right and I'm, I'm not quite like that i kind of right part of it is financial too like it's just yeah. it's too expensive to follow so i've yeah i've gotten to a point where i watch pay-per-views i'll either go out to you know like a, a dave and busters or something like that to watch a live pay-per-view or I'll just watch it a month later when it comes to fight pass. And then I'll watch the prelims. It's such a massive sport at this point too, that when you get outside of the UFC, you know, one of my kind of um, treats to myself for finishing the book, you know, I actually kind of finished about a year ago, eight months ago, something like that. But I started mm -hmm. watching all of the pride events in sequence from start oh, to yeah. finish. So I've been going through those and those, you know, that can be like three, four hours. Some of those really drag out, but I watch a pride event every, every week or so um, just to kind of refresh my memory. And that's such a dramatic difference from what, um, you know, the early UFCs were even yeah. like you said, you know, one FC is still going strong. There's Bellator, there's PFL now, the Strikeforce, 
back in the day there's you know there's so many different variations it's not counting you know you know there's so much stuff to actually watch once you get into it that it it's it's bigger than one person so you can kind of free fall into it there's an image i like i get stuck on someone a, a friend of mine who goes scuba diving deep sea like scuba diving told me there's a point where you can get so deep in the ocean that the water itself blocks the sunlight out and you're equally buoyant in any direction you go. You don't naturally float up anymore because there's so much downward pressure because you're so far down. You can't tell which way is back to the surface. And I, I think that's kind of what MMA is. It's what violence is in a lot of ways. It's very easy to get into, but it's very hard to get an exit path out of once you start fixating on you know, self-defense techniques or what the appropriate response is. What do you do if someone jabs? Do you take them down or do you slip and, you know, counter jab? You know, you know, there's there's no one consistent, clear answer and you can get kind of lost in the infinity of it. You know, I mean, it's almost like chess, you know, it's a yeah. big cliche about it, but it it's just a, a sort of chance to combine and recombine and recombine a bunch of different individual little pieces to see if you could have produced a different outcome. That's sort of what's captivating about it. There's no end to it. And it's interesting to to follow that journey because like you said, you know, Pride was a completely different beast from UFC. Like the way, in terms of entertainment, Pride probably had the perfect formula. You know, they built their fighters in a way where they are legends by the time you got to see them fight. You know, they build them in... Like today, sometime I see some guy who is like, I barely know, and I look back and he's like, this guy already has six fights in UFC. How did that, that even happen? You know, there are so many events. Pride, you knew who everybody was. You know, they built them. There was a storyline built in, and the way they did spectacle, nobody did. Of course, taking money from the Yakuza kind of spoiled that business model when it became well known. But, you know, in terms of storytelling, they were masters. And and it's interesting how in, in some way, in terms of storytelling, how even the origin of UFC was uh, I mean, partially was a marketing ploy and partially was storytelling because it's like when you are the Gracies and you move to US and you're not as famous as in Brazil and you have to break into a market that think that martial arts are all Asian, that martial arts are primarily striking and what you see in movies, they fell back to what they knew, which is like, okay, let's have a fight, let's have our guys win, and that will establish us with an audience that's otherwise not receptive. And so in that sense, you know, being the partially the brainchild of Orion Gracie and everything, initially UFC was more designed for marketing jujitsu than anything else you know and i thought like seeing how that's the origin how then when orion sells and it becomes something else it start becoming a sport when there's all the pressure on the sport is barbaric you guys need to put the rules you need to wear gloves you need to have round so it becomes more regulated now yeah. then it goes into the zufa era like you said like when the fertita brothers buy and they can afford to lose a lot of money to push a sport that's still somewhat niche mm. uh, the ultimate fighter change it how modern you know it's like you see it's been 30 years but it feels like 300 years in terms of how many changes have happened you know like you see all these different stages in the journey do you have a particular nostalgia for one stage or another or something that for you was the real MMA versus, or are you just sort of enjoying the ride through all of its incarnations? No, I definitely have nostalgia for for what it was at the start. I think my favorite fight of all time is um, Mark Hall versus Don Fry, which I think I always forget the number. It was I think it was UFC eight or mm-hmm. UFC ten. It was still the the period when the UFC was a tournament. Yeah, you know, we're we're a lot, you know, people think UFC one was a tournament and then just, you know, fast forward a few years and then it's just one off matches. But they they had that tournament format for, you know, several years, I think three yeah. years. It was almost like climbing Mount Everest in a way for people. You know, you'd get to the base camp and then you'd be, you know, you weren't preparing for a fight. You were preparing to survive an onslaught of three fights in a night or, you know, 
four fights in in the worst case scenario with UFC two. It was really much more than any kind of like one on one rivalry. That was a real kind of test of the human spirit in a way, a, a, a real pure test. It wasn't as exciting in terms of moment to moment action, and obviously back then the, the technical sort of foundation of the sport was much cruder than it is today. And you know nobody knew jujitsu. Nobody, you know, very few people understood how to wrestle or counter wrestle. And so you had that whole population of all American wrestlers come in and just sort of clean house for four or five years. But yeah, there's a moment where Mark Hall, he had been, he had competed in an earlier UFC. It was a smaller guy. I I don't know. I forget exactly how much he weighed. It was a period when they still had open weight fights. Mm -hmm. So you could have the hoist versus chemo or whatever. And you could really see the point where technique stops working underneath someone that's 100 pounds heavier than you and minimally strong you just you can't twist for an arm bar you can't just sort of magically choke them out there's a point where technique doesn't work the same kind of magic trick it does when you control for all the other factors and try to keep everything as equal as possible Mm -hmm. you know the goal for a lot of those fighters was to kind of get to the top of everest you know it wasn't to win a fight it was to prove that you could you know, survive the entire tournament and manage your own energy systems and sort of tactically map out how quick to walk. You know, like when you climb Everest, you sort of time your steps so you don't get into oxygen deprivation too soon. You have to sort of like go at a much slower pace than you kind of naturally want to at first. You know, there's a whole separate set of considerations beyond just sort of winning the fight directly in front of you. And, you know, there's a point Mark Hall, you know, Don Fries is, you know, this monstrous wrestler. He had a bit of amateur boxing experience and he just had, he traps Mark Hall, gets him down and is just pounding on him from above for, you know, four or five minutes. And it's clear he's just not going to get up, mm-hmm. you know, and he had gotten halfway through the tournament the time before. And so he had really sort of rededicated himself to getting to the summit this time it's clear he just can't he's just stuck there's a bigger stronger guy in front of him but neither of them are skilled enough yet to like finish the fight don fry is just pounding on his ribs and there's a bit of compassion right where don fry doesn't want to fully pull back and just knock him out and just do real serious damage so he's just pounding his ribs and his you can see visibly they're turning purple and they start talking to each other in the middle of the fight. And Don Fry is telling Mark Hall, he's like, you got to quit, Mark. You got to you gotta stop. And Mark just says to Don Fry, I can't, Don. I can't quit. I'm not, I, like, and you could just see the spirit just rising out of him, just saying, I, you know, do anything you want to me. But I, there's something in my, my spirit that won't allow me to stop. I know mm-hmm. I'm beaten already, but I just refuse to, like, stop i refuse to quit i refuse and it's just you know it's such a powerful moment i don't think the ufc can produce moments more powerful than that there's variations on that you know all throughout the history yeah but you saw it in its purest moment early on when it wasn't espn highlights and twitter little gifs that people like share around it was sort of like these small moments that occurred you know three times a year Mm-hmm. It just drew people like, can you survive? You know, and if you didn't, you come back four months later and see, test your luck. The wrinkle was that if you come back four months later, everyone is bigger and stronger and word has spread around. Of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. In a way, you know, losing is the most powerful thing that happens in the UFC, right? I mean, that's something I always thought about Conor McGregor. You, you know, Tito Ortiz before Conor McGregor, you know, you forget how un beatable he seemed to a lot of people in the early days there's that window from like 2000 to 2003 where you know he was this immaculate athlete that no one could imagine beating but most modern fans know him as a guy that never really won fights you know after chuck liddell beat him it was sort of just like this long kind of slow managed decline but, you know, he still had a fighter spirit and he just he kept throwing himself back in even after it was clear that he couldn't sort of compete at the highest levels. And I think, 
you know, it's that fighter spirit. It's the same reason the Diaz brothers are so popular. It's, you know, it's not the accomplishment. It's the spirit. It's the willingness to go further into the dark and to accept whatever the consequences are from choosing to do that. There are a couple of fights that to me embody, I mean, there are many actually, but the couple that stand in my mind that embody very much what you're talking about where after the downfall of pride, when you look at Sakuraba was already broken in every possible way and you look at this, there were a couple of matches that he did. I think one was in Hero, the other one, I forgot, maybe it was Dream. And, uh, you know, in one, he's getting mauled by his opponent in a way that it's clear that it should be stopped. And the ref decided to go on vacation and he's just, he's beyond the mauling. And Saku doesn't give up. And then, of course, there's that weird, like, it looked like a movie, you know, it pretty much never happens in real life when somebody takes that much of a beating, where somehow the other guy is just tired of beating him, so he's just losing energy, and Saku comes back and somehow arm bars him. Or there's another one, I think it was his last victory, where he's hunting for a leg lock, and in the process, he leaves himself exposed and absorbs, I don't know, I forget, 40, 50 strikes to the head with no defense and somehow managed to pull off the knee bar and everybody loses their mind because it's like it looks like the ultimate hero moment. I mean, those were fights that under any logic should have been stopped long before they he pulled off the win. But like the idea of this guy who goes, uh, as you put it, far beyond what any normal person would do, hunting for something. And in this case, it, there's even the cherry on the cake of him actually winning but even when he doesn't, you know, there's that, the spirit, that's even like Sakuraba himself. I mean, beside those two fights, if you think like, to me, one of the most uh, hero moments in MMA is him accepting to fight Hoyce Gracie under modified rules for 90 minutes, you know, the longest matches ever in modern MMA. Yeah. And then coming back to fight against Igor Vovchenchen, who was like the scariest striker in the world at the time, a couple of weight division above Sakuraba and fighting him to a draw before eventually calling it when they ordered him to fight one more round. And he's like, okay, he's got nothing left. But like, in terms of spirit, you look at that and you're like, holy shit, that's beautiful. You know, this is a guy who there's, there's no quitting him. You know, there's no way to make him stop. It's just unreal. And of course, stuff like that is inspiring. And of course, the problem of it is that whereas when you watch it in a movie, it can be scripted. In reality, part of what makes it exciting is that it's real. But of course, part of what makes it also makes you cringe a little is that it's real. And so the guy is taking unreal damage for you to have that moment of inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he he was a special person. I, I forgot that he had actually fought Vitor Belfort, but it's part of my, um, my special little treat of watching all these Pride yep. events in order again. I saw that fight. I like I sort of mind blanked it from from my memory, but like that's such a special fight too because Vitor was the heavyweight champion. So you see, you know, I mean, famously uh, Sakuraba, they fed him to the heavyweights in Pride, and you know he just you know like Krokop and Vanderlei, they just he couldn't compete physically and just took these merciless beatings, but like. Before that period, he really did hold his own with Vitor. He kind of beat Vitor Belfort up yep. pretty badly, I think. And that's that's one of the most inspiring, kind of like shocking fights for people that want to really kind of go a little bit deeper into MMA history. That's, you know, before even the Gracie killer moments. That's like, to me, that was a real coming out moment for uh, Sakuraba. Yeah, and he built a career on those moments, you know, because he had so many. I mean, even when you think about his fight with Quinton Jackson, who was a physical specimen and twice his size, and Quinton would pick him up and throw him, like, just ragdoll him, Mm -hmm. and Saku just stayed with it and took these crazy slams and then somehow found a way to hop on his back and choke him out. And you're like, how is that even a thing? I mean, first, it shouldn't be allowed because they are clearly not in the same weight division, but, you know, Pride was all about freak shows. But then, like, how could he handle that and come up on top? And he was, yeah, it was something that 
it's both uh, in some way horrifying, but at the same time, it's like also the coolest MMA you could possibly watch. It's like you see that and you see pure heroism on a certain level. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's part of that strange contradiction that makes up MMA for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's the simplest distillation of the difference between Pride and the UFC. Their idea of the sport wasn't that it was a sport. It was a test. Yeah. And so they didn't necessarily care if you won or lost. They were more interested in setting up matches that put people to the greatest test and to see how someone would endure under that test. And even if you lost, if you know, if you gave your all, that, that was in a in a, a strange way, that was still the same as kind of passing the test. Because the test oh, was yeah. can you win the fight? Can you not break? Even yeah. if you lose yeah. a fight, can you face you rise to the moment and face up to the, the stress and the demands of the circumstance you're put in. And that, you know, there's a pure sort of part of martial arts that that's all about the, the purest kind of martial arts is self-defense, not as a co-equal sport where everything is sort of offset, but it's like, who are you at your weakest, you know, when yeah. you're tired and coming home from work and four people jump you in an alley or something, what can you do for yourself then? And, you know, it's not just about, well, if everyone's the same weight and height right. and age yep. and, you know, we have rules and there's a referee and there's three neutral judges, then who would come out ahead? In a lot of ways, that's a very American kind of approach is sort of yeah. like faux egalitarianism. And, you know, you each get to bring three. Yeah, exactly. It's a duel with your seconds. And yeah, no, and I think that's what, to me, in fact, that's why of all the people, of course, there are of people who are probably better fighters than Sakuraba but in terms of the epic of MMA I really can't think of anybody more than Sakuraba who embodied it you know who really made a career out of it yeah it's really something else other things as we as we head toward wrapping up the episode other things that you want to throw out there either related to the books or thoughts you had about MMA or any other direction you want to take it one of the things that surprised me, this is not necessarily all that relevant today, but what people thought the pay-per-view market was in the 90s and how, you know, there's a lot of, you know, people that contest the the history and the origins of mixed martial arts and, you know, whether the UFC was even the first, the first MMA promotion, which, you know, clearly it wasn't. There's a long history of people fighting cross-discipline and promoting cross-discipline shows. I thought it was really interesting, and I didn't know it before I really got into the research for it, what a presumed growth sector pay-per-view television was in the late 80s and 1990s, and sort of how the arrival of financers looking for original pay-per-view programming really helped create what the UFC was. You know, Semaphore wasn't, you know, they weren't just a TV company around at the time. You know, they were a subsidiary of Bertelsmann Music Group which is a big, you know, record company, they saw this, the growth of this market alongside, you know, the subscription cable market where investors were, you know, very excited by the idea that consumers would pay not just a monthly subscription for, you know, a, a bundle of extra cable channels, but they'd also buy individual shows at, yeah. you know, a $15 fee. You can watch the New York opera. Or you can see, you know, new kids on the block. If they're not going to come to your town on a tour, you can still pretend like you're going to the concert if, you know, you have a cable subscription. And there was this huge sort of bubbling growth around people trying to come into that market with different concepts on original programming. What else can we do besides concerts? And that's really how Semaphore got into to the pay-per-view game. They started by just doing... You know, they're recording artists. We can spend ten or twenty thousand dollars extra to have a camera crew and a satellite truck come out to the arena and just broadcast the concert from you know the new kids on the block tour, the Iron Maiden tour, whatever, the Leonard Skinner tour. But what if we did original programming? Right. So that's how they got Campbell McLaren, who, you know, came out of the world of stand-up comedy. He was really given the assignment of trying to find things that weren't concerts, things that could be regular series that they could charge a recurring fee for 
to broadcast on pay-per-view and to find somehow a way to be competitive in this market that people thought would be a huge growth market. One of the things I think that gets lost in the myth about the UFC when they entered the, the dark period, when they were kicked off cable, was it wasn't just the, the political controversy that got them kicked off cable. It was kind of the collapse of the pay-per-view market. People kind of realized no one actually wanted to pay for original programming beyond sort of pornography and right. second run films, right? So yeah. it's not on VHS yet, but it's out of the movie theaters. But you can, you know, if you have a cable box, you can pay five bucks to watch a movie or, you know, whatever the porn is available. That kind of market went away and that played a huge part in what helped push the UFC towards bankruptcy. And I think it was a huge factor as the Fertitas took the company over and were trying to find ways to make money from the company. That market was still, you know, they were trying to compete in a market that didn't really exist anymore. They're trying to sell the UFC as a pay-per-view um, package for a market that had kind of collapsed. I think that's what you do beautiful in the book is capture this is more than just a history of MMA. It's a history of uh, it's a social history. It's an economic history. It's a history of like changing market of entertainment. You know, there are there are many, many factors that you pull in beside uh, the stories of specific players in that industry. It's very interesting because it can appeal to multiple audience, not just the hardcore MMA fan, but also really almost as a sociological event of how these past 30 years, MMA has intersected with so much, so many other factors. So, yeah, for anybody who wants to check it out, a reminder, the book is called The Cage Kings, and it's a real serious, in-depth, several hundred pages kind of thing, a history that takes you through this 30 years journey weaving both the sport of MMA with so many other considerations from politics to economics and everything in between so yeah thank you so much man I really appreciate uh, you coming on the show to chat about it I really appreciated the book itself so anything else you want to throw out there places where people can find you or anything else no I appreciate it this has been a lot of fun I appreciated your work in the past especially this podcast so it's great to be on it finally i have a moderately inactive twitter account um <laughs> my my email is pretty public if anyone wants to email me i'm, I'm happy to go back and forth uh, on email but otherwise i'm just uh living life working on more stories writing I dig it. Keep me updated on whatever whatever is coming up next. Surely it'll be pickleball. Yes, that's probably not the one. But uh, yeah, keep us, uh, absolutely, keep us updated. This was, uh, I really enjoyed reading it and uh, it's a great story. So yeah, whatever you have, uh, you're cooking up next. Let's let us know. Sounds great. Thank you. Awesome. The Funky Music Means One Thing. That's the end of another fine episode of the Drunken Dows Podcast. Who knew what intricacies led to all of this incredible fame and fortune? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's like anything that becomes a billion-dollar industry. The, the behind-the-scenes story gets sketchy and interesting, to say the least. Yeah, for sure. But having said all that, anything else we want to throw out there before we wrap? I'm just going to give the big teaser. Uh, we'll, we'll have my fair update if we survive the hurricane yes. next time. Yes. Uh, it went pretty well. The kids now have a whole bunch of terrible new, it's not addictions, uh, hobbies. Hobbies. Hobbies are better than addictions, I would say. I think so, yes. too. No, that's it. Guys, have a great week. Yay! Would you like to hear a terrible story? Yes, always. One day the rod shall teach you. What have we learned this week? Be calm, be kind, be brave. Yep, words to live by. See you guys. D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. Good shit. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one.
And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Dallas Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as they come out. You can keep track of Danielli at D-Bolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N and the numeral one. We'll see you all soon. Woo!